the director of Don't Look Up and an Old Friend, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. That human adventure is often best reflected in the arts, including film. It's rare that a movie gets science, scientists, and their importance just right, which is just one of the reasons Don't Look Up has already made itself a classic. That's my view anyway, and the view of several of my Planetary Society colleagues. We'll welcome the movie's director, Adam McKay. You'll hear Adam give high praise to the science consultant for the film, Amy Meinzer, and I'm happy to say that Amy also joined the conversation. Later, we'll get all susical when Bruce Betts reveals the crater in our solar neighborhood that honors that beloved author of so many classic children's stories. The December 2nd edition of the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter starts with one of the prettiest pictures ever taken on the Red Planet. It combines two panoramas captured by Curiosity, which is still rolling across Mount Sharp. The image smoothly transitions from a Martian morning to the evening with a spectrum of beautiful light. You'll find it at planetary.org slash downlink. Just below is another stunner. This one comes from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's a windblown crater with ripples that make it look like a living thing. Simply gorgeous. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris chaired her first National Space Council meeting last week. The agenda included release of the first major space policy document by the Biden administration. The downlink also has a link to your choices for the best of everything space in 2021, including the best space image. It's one we're pretty proud of. I think you know how we at the Planetary Society feel about planetary defense. I'm sure you also know that several movies have used the threat of a world-shattering impact to drive their plots. Well, you've never seen one like Don't Look Up. First of all, it's a hilarious comedy, albeit a dark and satirical one. Second, it features such first-ranked stars as Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, Ariana Grande, Tyler Perry, Kate Blanchett, Jonah Hill, and on and on. Third, and most important for us, its central characters are possibly the most believable scientists in the history of film, as is nearly all of the science portrayed. As you'll hear, director Adam McKay, who has made films ranging from Anchorman to The Big Short, gives much credit to one of our favorite guests. Amy Meinzer of the University of Arizona last joined us in July when she provided an update on the Neo Surveyor project she leads. Neo Surveyor is the infrared space telescope that will seek out the thousands of near-Earth objects yet to be discovered. Amy and Adam joined me in an online session a few days ago. Adam McKay, Amy Meinzer, welcome to Planetary Radio. Adam, I want to congratulate you. I didn't get access to the film uh, until late one night, and I couldn't wait. I had to watch it then. And then I got very little sleep because my mind was on fire. And as I have already told you, I think you have created the greatest dark satirical comedy since Dr. Strangelove, except that Don't Look Up has a lot more heart. And your Strangelove is a tech billionaire named Isherwell, who is just just played with creepy perfection by uh, Mark Rylance. So uh, thank you for this terrific movie. Oh, that is very high praise, uh, Matt. And thank you for uh, having me on. 
I, I was frequently laughing out loud, but a lot of the laughter, I have to admit, was was painful. Um, <laughs> a, a, a lot of what you showed us in this kind of funhouse mirror held up to uh, 21st century America uh, kind of cut to the bone, which I guess was also the idea. Yeah. And, and by the way, I got to give props to Dr. Meinzer. Boy, oh boy, her input, guidance, also the culture of the scientists too. Oh, yes. Instrumental. So it was very important, especially for the beginning of the movie. Oh, and, and I'll also give Amy credit for uh, Carl Sagan's little cameo in the movie. Um, <laughs> she suggested that. And uh and I love it. It's such a nice detail. But but yeah, that that was the idea with the movie is that, you know, we're living through uh, careening, shifting seismic times. We're clearly in some kind of changing era. Uh, there's some sort of shift that's happened. Some of it's so big we can't fully understand it. And it's confusing. It's scary. It's it's jarring. And I, I, we really all wanted to make something that allowed us to have some distance and to laugh and to share our emotions about it because we've been so pummeled by it for the last five, 10 years, 15, 20 years, this slow, gradual uh, slide that we've been in. And so the idea was like, man, if we can get together in a movie theater, which may not happen as much as we had hoped with COVID, but, um, but even if we can get together with family and friends or even by ourselves, share a laugh, I, I think there's a real power and value to that kind of distance and perspective on these times. I sure hope you're right about that. And I, I hope that this film uh, will contribute, uh, move us maybe toward that goal. Amy, I'm not a bit surprised to hear about the influence you had over the film, <laughs> uh, including about the depiction of the scientists, especially in that opening scene when Jennifer Lawrence's character makes the discovery and is, then is joined by her colleagues, including the astronomer played by Leonardo DiCaprio. I, I mean, it sounds like you got listened to a lot more than the typical science advisor to a feature production. Well, I got to say, I mean, Adam is great. He's a he's a huge, huge science nerd. Sorry, Adam, <laughs> but you are. <laughs> That's a compliment. Yeah, absolutely. Hundred percent a compliment. It's you know, it, it's it's really great to work with artists and creators who who are really themselves truly interested in science and. As I like to kind of think about it, you you want ideally to partner with artists who are interested in capturing the feelings of, of the scientists because, you know, the things we learn, sometimes they're great news. Other times it's not great news. So uh, to me, the science is telling us about the world, but the art, you know, the movies, uh, music, the music that goes with the film, all of that is part of visuals are part of capturing how do we feel about this news that we're learning? How do we feel about these facts and how do we interpret them? How do we... How do we live with that information? And I think that's one of the things that I really, really enjoyed working with with Adam and the rest of the of the team on the movie about is they really helped to humanize the science and show scientists as human beings trying to grapple with some really difficult news. Something we try to do on this show as well. I also wonder about the choice of a comet to drive this story, uh, this, this uh, possibly world-ending a near-Earth object. Adam, why why a comet? I, you know, initially it was not a comet. It was an asteroid. It was a. Uh -huh. It was actually a 32 kilometer wide asteroid. And then I spoke to Amy. Uh, I was introduced to Amy, who started giving me some some scientific parameters to what this actually could be. 
So we discussed the difference between the asteroid and the comet. She informed me that, no, if it was 32 kilometers wide, there's nothing we could do about it. And so we, it was funny. We had this fiction versus science haggling back and forth till we came up with a, uh, a comet roughly the size of the one that, that, that killed the dinosaurs, the Chicxulub object. And it was great because, it, it, once again, I can't stress how important it was that the first five, ten minutes of this movie be a place of reason and science and proportion because they're going to go into the – they're going to take the log flume into the ball pit of madness uh, later in the movie uh, so that was that was Amy. The reason it's a comet, I'll I'll let her answer that part of the question. It really fit the the, the needs of this particular story, right? Because you have an astronomer who's who's not really looking for comets. She's using a large aperture telescope, one of the biggest telescopes in the world, Subaru, and she's looking for something else. So it, it was fairly straightforward to design a comet. It's actually kind of loosely modeled after Comet Neowise, which we discovered mm. last year. And we found that comet uh, with the Neowise telescope in about late March, but it made its close approach to the sun and the earth in early July. So in other words, these Oort cloud comets can move inward with just absolutely incredible speeds with respect to the earth. So in other words, it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility. The good news is space is really big. So even though these things come in with huge velocities, the odds of actually hitting the earth are really, really, really tiny. But in this case, we see what happens if one is discovered that's headed our way. Well, apologies for putting you on the spot, but what did you think of the the spectacular CGI depictions of the comet? And that's just a percentage of, of, uh, of the amazing visuals in the film. Yeah, we had a lot of great conversations with the visual effects team, and they are they are some of the most talented people in the business. They really, really, we I sent them a lot of different pictures of the comets. We looked at uh, the Comet 67P that Rosetta took those spectacular images of. We looked at a lot of different comet pictures. We looked at Comet Neowise pictures. And they really, they took it and they ran with it. There's a line in the movie where the comet is both beautiful and horrible. Yeah, one of my favorite lines in the film. Yeah, it's a, it was great. I've never had this experience. I had a little bit with the big short with our financial consultant, Adam Davidson, but Amy really stepped up because Amy was directly talking to Raymond and Dion, our VFX supervisors. And there were several times that Ray and Dion would call me and say, well, what do you think of this? And I would just straight up say, call Amy. There is one more thing, a science related thing. And, you know, this is a science and space science show. I suspect that you have made the first feature film that openly sings the praises of peer review. I cannot think of another film that even <laughs> mentions it. So uh, kudos, folks. It seems to be the key, the linchpin. And, and it's funny, too, talking to my daughters, one of, one of which is in high school, they don't really talk about it a lot in, in a lot of our core uh, educational systems or institutions. But as I've talked to Amy and as I've spoken to other scientists, climate scientists through the years, it is the key phrase, and it may be the highest burden of proof that exists for mankind, and yet you don't hear it mentioned nearly as much as it should be and what that process is and what that process means. So yeah, I, we, we took a lot of joy in getting that in there. That was something DiCaprio was pushing as well. Amy was very encouraging with that. Sometimes we jokingly refer to peer review as the worst, best system we have, right? I mean, it's, it's messy. <laughs> like democracy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's messy. But at the same time, it, it really subjects 
our, our calculations, all of our work to, to the scrutiny of others and, and the idea that experiments should be replicable, that other people should be able to take the same information and get the same results. That is, that is how it works. And I think, you know, one of the strengths of science is that we do learn. Right. There's a lengthy discussion about what does uncertainty mean in science. Right. That's a pretty big thing to scientists that has a really precise mathematical definition. But in the everyday life, in everyday use, it, it kind of doesn't. It means something different. If you say something's uncertain, it means you don't know. That's not what it means to a scientist, to a scientist that just quantifies exactly the knowledge that you the confidence interval that you have on this particular measurement. Right. So in other words, we use words in ways that they are just not necessarily understood by non-scientists. And that's, you know, that's on us to help explain that. I'm going to paraphrase another one of my favorite lines in the movie, and it comes from Meryl Streep's uh, character, the president of the United States. They're sitting in the Oval Office and the scientists are telling her, I forget what they end up with. It's I, I'm paraphrasing, 99.97% chance the comet's going to hit if we don't do something. And she says, well, it's just, we'll settle on 70%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that exchange is a key exchange. And that, once again, Amy really helped with that because we wanted him to try and communicate that it was going to hit. But then the truth is there's no such thing as 100%. So the second he says that, and Rob Morgan, who plays Dr. Oglethorpe uh, from the planetary- Who's great, by the way. Just terrific. Tremendous. Uh, from the actual Planetary Defense Center. Uh, am I getting the name right? Planetary Defense Coordination Office. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And he says, well, scientists never like to say 100%. And that was another line I was very happy to get in the movie because we were hoping to shed a light on that, that even gravity, which is settled science, is not 100%. There's still going to be breakthroughs with gravity. We still don't understand every part of the dynamic of gravity. And, and I like making movies where I get to learn things as well. And that was something I really got to learn with making this movie as a, as a filmmaker. Amy, I hope that Lindley Johnson, when he sees this film, the guy who really heads the PDCO, I hope he likes what he sees. I got to share a little piece of trivia, uh, Adam, that I bet you're not aware of. That patch for the PDCO, which shows up twice in the film, was designed by a friend of mine named Michael Okuda. Mike and Rick Sternbach were responsible for the design of several Star Trek series, beginning with Star Trek The Next Generation. So there. You've got to be kidding me. I love that your friend designed that patch because never has a governmental organization's logo been featured more in a movie than that <laughs> patch is featured in this movie. No, and, and the, the second time it shows up, well, we, we won't go into how that happens. Um, I, I want to go back to that line that Amy mentioned. When Leonardo DiCaprio's character looks up at the sky, the comet has just become visible to the naked eye. And he says, I, I, I don't know if it's, if it's terrible or if it's, I think it was horrific, it's horrific and it's beautiful at the same time. To me, so much of this film can be described that way. It's an interesting thing because I think some people tend to think of religion and science as mutually exclusive. But one of the things I really appreciate about scientists is that really all you're doing is observing. And if you want to say you're observing God's creation, you could say that. You could just say you're respecting the reality of God's creation, or you could just say you're observing reality. You could say it however you want, but there's a humility and a supplication to science that I think really comes through in that moment with Dr. Mindy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, that to me sums up 
the posture of science that that is really strikingly beautiful. Even though you guys work long hours doing meticulous work, there there is something very, dare I say, almost religious about it. Well, at its core, science is really the appreciation of nature, right? Yeah, yeah. We're part of the universe. And when you discover something, whether it's good or bad as it relates to humanity, we're part of that. And that's a pretty awe-inspiring thing, I think, sometimes, even if the news is not good. I don't know. My conclusion out of all of this is, look, I spend all day looking at airless rocks, okay? And that means that when you look at the Earth, the Earth looks really, really good, I mean, by comparison. As, as my boss, Bill Nye, says, everybody I know lives here. Um, I, we're coming to the end of our time. We only got a couple of minutes left and I got one more to throw at you, Adam. But before I do that, Amy, you know that we are all following development of Neo Surveyor, that space telescope that's going to save us from objects like this. I'm only half serious, half, I'm only half kidding there, I should say. Um, what's a, what's a one sentence status report on how it's coming together? So much engineering, holy moly. It's, an, it's, it's just incredible to watch the team come together. So yeah, decisions left and right, building, building, building. Uh, we are very, very busy bees right now, which is wonderful. We're so grateful to get to be able to do it. And you'll be back on the show, I hope, to talk more about this as it progresses. Adam, without giving away the ending of the film, I really meant it when I said that uh, while it is a wonderful satire, it has far more heart than most of the other big sat- satirical films out there. It ends with a lot of the qualities that we all desire, faith, family, friendship, courage, love, even some justice. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it was a lovely, lovely ending in spite of itself. Yeah, I think that's a really good description. That's what we wanted to do with the movie. We wanted to feel a lot of different feelings. We wanted to get some good, hard laughs at ourselves we wanted to go back to the, the core elements that make us human beings, community, family, friends, like you said, faith, humility, and uh, and then a nice big giant laugh right at the end. Uh, and then ultimately, too, you know, it, it, and I hope people walk out of the theater or turn off their TV after seeing it. And remember, when it comes to the climate crisis, when it comes to the problems we're facing, we can do this. We have science. The technology is out there uh, for renewables, carbon capture, carbon carbon removal. We just have to do it with sincere and incredible intent, which we're not doing right now. But overall, I am hopeful. We have Excalibur, which is science, and it's <laughs> it can do a lot of very tremendous, tremendous things. So, um, yeah, ultimately, uh, some people could say, oh, it's a little bit dark, but I, I really view the movie as in its totality as a very hopeful movie. Amy, your last thoughts? Uh, You've seen it a few times, I bet. Couldn't agree more. I think, you know, the choice of what happens next is up to us. That's really the message of the movie. So let's go and make things have a better ending, right? Have the best possible ending. That's up to us. We can do that. Thank you both. Amy Meinzer, science advisor on uh, Don't Look Up, a film I cannot wait to see again on a big screen. And I cannot recommend it more highly to uh, all of you out there who listen to this show. I think uh, you're prob- you're likely to love it. Amy, of course, also professor of planetary science at the University of Arizona, leading development of Neo Surveyor, and still the principal investigator for NeoWise. Adam McKay, writer and director of Don't Look Up, 
he has also made a whole bunch of my other favorite uh, movies in the last few years. Thank you both, folks. I hope it is as great a success as you hope. And I will give one last piece of advice to the audience. Stay through the credits. <laughs> Matt, thank you for having us on. Likewise. Thanks a lot, Matt. Don't Look Up premieres in limited theatrical release on December 10th and will be available on Netflix December 24th. Want to hear what my Planetary Society colleagues think of the movie? They join me in the online version of this week's show at planetary.org radio and elsewhere. You'll also hear more from Adam and Amy. Planetary Radio will be right back with What's Up. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related, we invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. And I have a question for you from Ben Owens in Australia. When are you going to interview Bruce's dog? I guess it's actually a question for me. Yeah, and it's it's two dogs, technically. Not technically. I mean, there are two dogs. <laughs> Literally. We'll put that on the calendar. Uh, so stay tuned, Ben. We're ready to hear about the night sky now, including the dog star. <laughs> to see, see Sirius the dog star, uh, you're going to have to be awake in the pre-dawn east, south. Sorry, that one was off the cuff, but it's up there. Um, <laughs> also up there in the pre-dawn, but really tough low down is reddish Mars, but it'll start rising in a few weeks. Right now, of course, the two things to look at is the lineup of planets in the early evening west, with the lowest and furthest west being super bright Venus, and then yellowish Saturn, and then very, very bright Jupiter, all lined up, and they're hanging out together. Soon they'll start descending, so we've got, you know, the rest of December to play with them easily, so make sure you check them out. All right, on to This Week in Space History. It was 1962, and Mariner 2 became the first spacecraft to fly by another planet, or at least fly by and take data, and that was Venus. And then 10 years later, the last humans were walking on the moon and then leaving the moon this week in 1972, Apollo 17, mm -hmm. on the moon and leaving the moon. We move on to random space Lovely. For reference, let's a little quick background. Density of ice, water ice, normal pressures is around one, around the gram per cubic centimeter, just like water. And again, we're planetary scientists for the moment, so we're just getting kind of close, nothing precise. And rock is around three in those units. There are only three moons in the solar system that have an average density over three, indicating they're 
quite rocky, which is Io, the moon, and Europa. Besides those three, there's only one other that's above two even, and that's barely above two, and that's Triton, moon of Neptune. Everything else is below that and uh, indicating the icy nature of those moons, uh, at least generally, or porous. Bunch of lightweights in our solar system. There are. Well, not a lot of Rockies, just a lot of bullwinkles. <laughs> All right. We got, a, we got a big contest here. Oh, yeah. We got to get there. Okay. Sorry. I asked you, where in the solar system, other than Earth, is there a feature named after Dr. Seuss? And I note, probably not a real doctor, but a heck of a guy. How'd we do? Great, it sounds like. We actually did. I bet you expected a few more rhymes or poems than we normally get. And we got them. And we also had more entries than we usually get because who doesn't love Dr. Seuss, right? If he's a winner, it's the first time in three and a half years. He is a past winner, but it's been that long. It's Elijah Marshall from Australia. He said, Seuss is a crater on the surface of Mercury named in honor of Theodore Geisel. Since Dr. Seuss was his uh, pen name, it was named by the IAU in 2012. He says, thanks for the rabbit hole, Dr. Betts. <laughs> it was great fun. <laughs> That's what I try for. A uh, crater on Mercury. Mercury where they name craters after uh, artists and authors and the like. Elijah, congratulations. We're going to tell MIT, the Space Exploration Initiative, to send you a copy of Into the Anthropocosmos, that terrific book by Ariel Ekblaw. And thank you to everybody who uh, commented on how much you enjoyed that interview uh, with Ariel a couple of weeks ago. I did too. Into the Anthropocosmos, a whole space catalog from the MIT Space Exploration Initiative from the MIT Press, not surprisingly. I do have a bunch more stuff here. I think you're going to enjoy Yay. it. First of all, we do have a, a an image, a picture of the crater. It uh, was provided, uh, the link to it, by Keith Landa in Connecticut. Thank you, Keith. And we'll uh, post that link on uh, this week's show page, planetary.org slash radio. It's a messenger image from our uh, poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Would you like a feature, Seuss? The IAU is asking use. I would not like it in the stars. I would not like it out on Mars. I would not like it here or there. I would not like it anywhere. Okay, I guess I could agree. A crater out on Mercury. <laughs> wow. I hope you have some green eggs and ham fans. Some very talented listeners. Yeah, aren't they? Thank you to all of you, whether I was able to read it or not. Uh, we appreciate all the wonderful efforts. And hopefully you'll appreciate this uh, next contest from Bruce. God, I'm racking my brain to put it into susical verse, but uh, it's just too hard. So I'm giving you this straight. So Galileo, famous dude, discovered the four later named Galilean satellites, the big moons of Jupiter, in 1610-ish. They later got named the Galilean moons or Galilean satellites. When was the next moon of Jupiter discovered, and what moon was it? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Cool. You have until the 15th. That would be December 15 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer for this one and possibly win yourself a Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber asteroid because we got a million of them. Well, actually, we don't. We're going to run out at some point, but for now, you still have a shot. I'm going to go. I'm not wearing a hat. I have seen a doe 
and I'm saying goodbye to Matt. <laughs> Everybody go out there, look up the night sky and think about making up Seuss rhymes on the spot and how bad that can go. Thank you and good night. Bad Lee, Bad Lee. I just want to say that it's probably a good thing that your science books for kids are, are not um, <clears throat> rhyming. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist for the Planetary Society. He writes great books for kids, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who are always looking up. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.